Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for our episode, November Remembrances, Part 1. Hey guys, and welcome back. So, Stormy, have you tried the freeze-dried candies? <laughs> I think I, no, no. But you know what? I read somebody or watched somebody, maybe it was on TikTok, I watched somebody that was trying those, and they seemed to think they were pretty good. I don't know. Have you? Yes. So. Yeah, give we, me the skinny. <laughs> the kids watch a lot of TikTok. I watch a lot of TikTok. I can't even remember yeah. on the kids, to be honest. But the kids pick up on all these trends, I guess, in these candy things, especially our youngest. She's always coming in saying, oh, I want to try this or, oh, I want to try that. They've been on a freeze-dried candy kick. We had not tried them. I had not seen them anywhere. They just kept talking about them. It still hadn't even popped up really in my TikTok feed. A couple of Friday nights ago, like this has been way back, one of the football games that we stopped at, they had a bunch of little tents set up. I think it was maybe their homecoming. And so Mm. they had a bunch of little tents set up around the thing. And one of the booths was some kind of snack shack, something or other. And they had any kind of freeze-dried candy you could want. Really? Yes. And they had freeze-dried Skittles. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. It has started a whole addiction. Okay. So I guess, I mean, I could kind of get why you would do that with like chocolate because chocolate could go bad. But why would you do that with candy like Skittles? I don't, I guess I don't get the whole freeze dried thing. What makes it different? It makes it a whole different texture. Like instead of, you know, Skittles are chewy. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being chewy, it's crunchy. Oh, So I think the reason I like the freeze-dried Skittles is it has a different texture. So they do freeze-dried nerds, Jolly Mm. Ranchers. Really, there's all kinds of nerds in forever. We actually got salt water Laffy Taffy. (laughs) I don't really like the Jolly Ranchers or the nerds Mm. because they almost have like a Cheeto puff. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, weird. Like, it's really <laughs> weird. Because Jolly Ranchers are really hard. Yeah. I mean, you can't really chew a Jolly Rancher. You can buy into any of this stuff. and it, But the Nerds and the Jolly Ranchers have that same kind of Cheeto puff texture to me. Oh, weird. The Skittles don't have that. Huh. They still have that candy coating on the outside. Huh. They just kind of expand. Oh, and they're not so chewy weird. anymore. I've been <laughs> through like five bags. And they're not your normal Skittle size bags because it makes them bigger. They're like, I mean, I don't even know if this bag, this large bag, is the equivalent of one Skittle bag. I should probably look. Or if I'm eating like, 
you know, the king size, double king size or something. I don't know, but I'm going through bags of these things. It's so bad that our local pharmacy actually sells these in their store that Mm -hmm. they've actually commented, man, you guys are getting these a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I really should have a conversation with the people that are making these. The ones actually that we're getting now, I actually have some um, nerds sitting right here from Below Zero Treats in Robertsdale. Huh. Interesting. I'd really appreciate it if you guys could stop making the Skittles so dang good. <laughs> Not helping. So if you uh, if you out there at Below Zero want to sponsor us, we'll be happy to do so. I'll take some Skittles. Yeah. Maybe I'll send you some. Oh, do it, please. Yes. And then you I can love, be like, okay. I really like I Skittles. And we had a bunch of them at Halloween because we didn't quite get rid of all of our candy. And yeah. So we had leftovers. Yeah. Mm. We don't ever get trick-or-treaters. We don't live in a neighborhood. We haven't so, up until where we are now. Yeah, so. we don't get trick-or-treaters because well, there's not people around us, really. So Yeah. Um, well, we actually have quite a few kids around us, and we, I, I would say we probably got about 50 this oh, year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I would think, actually, just kind of knowing the neighborhood, it probably would have been even more, except for, we didn't know this, but the little town that we live in, they do a thing where they shut down Main Street, the Main Mm -hmm. Street in there, and all the storefronts do Halloween. Oh, that's cool. And so my husband had surgery, and when he got released, it was Halloween day. And so I had to go get some things, and I didn't know this was occurring, and got oh, stuck no. in traffic and had to park at the opposite end of the street to go get what I was doing. The good thing is I got to walk through it all, and I took some video of it. But it was kind of like what you see in a movie, like when you see kids roaming the streets, and there's just yeah. a ton of them. It was it was a lot like that. It was very cool. That's really um, cool, actually. So next year, I'm going to know that ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> and know to be prepared yeah. ahead of time. I'm like, if I can think of anybody to bring kids down the might have to do that because it's a lot of, I love Halloween. <laughs> My chiropractor, actually, we were talking about Halloween and he asked about trick-or-treating. And I was like, this is actually the first time in 15 years I didn't have somebody to dress up Yeah, because my son outgrew it on me this year and didn't want to go. And he said, this was the first time we didn't have any trick-or-treaters in our neighborhood. He was Mm. like, but I've noticed something. He said, the number of trick-or-treaters you get has a correlation to your lot size. And I was like, what? He said, the bigger your yard is, the -hmm. less trick-or-treaters you have. He was like, if you are in a neighborhood where you have smaller lots, you get more trick-or-treaters. Yeah, because it's easier to go from door to door, I bet. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I would think maybe, too, if the lots are bigger and the house sits further back or something, then maybe people are a little apprehensive as well, maybe. But yeah, you know, kids go where they can get lots of candy. So if they have to walk a long way from house to house, they're probably not going to do it. That's what I said, too. I was like, well, that's probably right. They can hit more houses if the yards are smaller. Yeah. So we're heading into the holidays. And as we do, we can't help but think how hard the holidays are and the families that are left behind when they have a loved one who's missing or has been murdered. The weight of these losses is especially felt during special occasions like Thanksgiving and Christmas, amplifying the difficulty for those left behind. And throughout the month, we'll be spotlighting a few cases that have touched us deeply. While each of these cases is significant, we don't want to minimize any case. We truly care about all of the cold cases, and we hope for a future where cold cases are a thing of the past. 
For today, though, we'll be sharing brief summaries of cases that we want to remember and share, our November remembrances. As we dove into these cases and prepared for this episode, we were struck by the sheer number of stories from November that we felt compelled to share. This realization gave us pause, especially considering that a couple of them unfolded right around Thanksgiving, adding that extra layer of difficulty, as Stormy pointed out. Additionally, we've come across more information related to a recent case that also occurred near Thanksgiving. To ensure we do justice to these stories, we've decided to present the November Remembrances in two parts. I think we mentioned in the last episode, um, we do have an update coming for Dina Hubbard, but we are waiting for a second conversation before we share any information with you about that. And as always, remember, as you listen to the names and summaries of these cases, if any piece of information triggers your memory, don't hesitate to reach out. The contact information for each case can be found in the episode description. Your help is critical on keeping their names in the public mind and supporting ongoing efforts of these families to find a resolution for their loved ones. One of the first cases we shared after forming ACCA is the first case of our episode today, Christian Charles Hollis. Five years ago, on November 2nd, 2018, at approximately 2.50 a.m., Mobile Police Department was dispatched to the Cochrane Causeway related to a hit-and-run. Upon arrival, Mobile Police Department officers found 21-year-old Christian Hollis deceased in the car he had been driving stuck in the ditch, still running with the headlights and the hazard lights on. According to the records received by the family from MPD, multiple witnesses saw Christian's car stuck in the ditch and saw Christian walking around. Two individuals called 911. One of those individuals had turned around to go back when they saw a dark-colored van hit Christian. None of the witnesses, including the ones at the scene when MPD arrived and the ones who called 911, recalled the driver of the van stopping at any point. And neither of the two 911 callers was the driver of the van. With vehicle parts collected from the scene, MPD was able to identify the van and issue a bolo. On November 3, 2018, That bolo was canceled when MPD received a phone call from an attorney stating the van involved in the hit and run was located at a local repair shop and gave permission on behalf of his client, Kurt Allen, to have the vehicle towed back to MPD's impound yard. The records indicate that upon arrival at the repair shop, the MPD investigator noted damage to the van, quote, consistent with what the hit and run vehicle should have. Once the vehicle arrived at MPD's impound yard, a search for evidence was performed and various exterior locations of the van were swabbed for DNA. Allen also signed a statement acknowledging ownership and that he had taken it to the repair shop. On November 9, 2018, MPD submitted a partial antenna from the scene along with a partial antenna from the van to Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences for analysis. And on December 26, 2018, DFS issued a report confirming the two pieces matched. In addition to the physical evidence, the Mobile Police Department records indicate a review of surveillance footage from the motel where Allen and an unidentified passenger stayed. The notes detail Allen's actions, pulling into the parking lot, parking in front of the office, inspecting the damage at the front of the van, checking into the hotel, relocating the van to another parking spot, and then both Allen and the passenger examining the van before heading into their room. The motel lobby surveillance reportedly included audio, and the next morning it recorded a conversation between Allen and a motel employee. In that exchange, Allen admitted to hitting something the previous night and causing the damage to his van. Almost a year later, on August 20, 2019, following delays from the mobile lab, DFS determined the blood found on the van's headlight housing matched Christian's. According to a note in the MPD record, Chief ADA Blackwood instructed MPD not to arrest the suspect and to continue gathering evidence. 
In 2019, Christian's case was presented to a grand jury. However, no indictment was issued. According to family members, they were told the passenger in the van needed to be located before the case could be presented to a second grand jury. The family undertook this task and provided the information to the Mobile County DA's office. The family was later told the passenger provided no new information. To date, Christian's case has not been presented to a second grand jury and no arrests have ever been made. If you have any information regarding the hit and run death of Christian Hollis, please contact the Mobile Police Department at 251-208-7211 or submit an anonymous tip on their website. Dorothy Michelle Haney 31-year-old Dorothy Michelle Haney, or Michelle as she went by, went in for a regular shift at her Senco gas station job on November 16, 2017. However, November 18th, a motorist noticed a body off the shoulder of Turner's Mill Road between Jackson Trace Road and the entrance to the Civilian Markmanship's program, Talladega Park. The motorist called 911 and Talladega Sheriff's Office responded to find Michelle deceased. What most assumed at first was a motor vehicle accident of some sort quickly became evident that Michelle had been shot and had died from a gunshot wound to the head. It also appears that Michelle clocked in for work as to be expected, but then disappeared. Her mother was worried, but still hoping she would come home. We haven't found more detail on what happened at the gas station after she clocked in, or if she formally was reported missing during that time before she was found. Investigators believe she was killed and then brought to the location where she was found. Michelle leaves behind a husband and six children, to include two stepchildren. Her mother is still searching for answers as well. This would mark six years as of today, as of the posting of this episode, since she was taken from her family. If you have any information about Michelle Haney's murder, please contact the Talladega Police Department at 256-362-2748 or at their website. We'll include that in the description. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Joyce Chastity Bosarge, 38-year-old Chastity Bosarge, was found in a marshy area off Rebel Road in Mobile, Alabama on November 4, 2017. Mobile County Sheriff's Office stated they believed Chastity had been there for several days before being found, and they also believed that her death may have happened elsewhere and that she had been brought to this location afterwards. Less than a month later, MCSO identified Ralph Pollock as a person known to Chastity and as a person of interest. Captain Paul Birch, who is now the sheriff, told the media when they initially spoke with Pollock, he refused a DNA swab. Investigators returned with a court order and found that he had quit his job of 22 years and was nowhere to be found. In reading articles and an ongoing discussion from a Team Sheriff Facebook post created in 2018, Ralph's charges on his warrant are obstructing governmental operations and corpse abuse. So it sounds like they have enough to believe he was involved, if not the actual perpetrator of her murder. To verify that he still hasn't been apprehended, we did a search on the MCSO warrant search page, and the warrant is still open. We also left a follow-up comment on the Team Sheriff post If you have any information on the whereabouts of Ralph Pollock or any information at all regarding Chastity Bosarge's murder, please contact the Mobile County Sheriff's Office at 251-574-8633, or you can submit an anonymous tip on their website.
Sherry Therese Smith. On the evening of November 20th, 2011, 32-year-old Sherry Smith and her daughter came home briefly so her daughter could pick up extra clothes for an extended weekend sleepover with a friend. Sherry was to return to their Fairfield home in Jefferson County that night after dropping off her daughter. In an article in the Daily Beast in September of 2021, her daughter was noted as saying Sherry was looking forward to a night by herself as she had been away visiting her boyfriend in Atlanta just prior to this weekend. In the wee hours of the morning, around 4 to 4.30 a.m., officers responded to a burglar alarm at Sherry's home. When they arrived, the front door was slightly open, and upon search of the home, found Sherry in the master bedroom, a victim of multiple stabbing and gunshot wounds. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Because there was no evidence of forced entry or anything stolen, and because of the extreme violence of the attack, the then chief of police, Leon Davis, believed that the perpetrator was known to Sherry. Family seems to believe the assailant may have been lying in wait already in the house, possibly even when she and her daughter were both there the prior day. Her daughter recalls not hearing the alarm system beep when they came in and realized that the alarm hadn't been set when she had stopped at home to pick up gear for a basketball game, leaving a window of opportunity for someone to enter before they arrived back home on Sunday. Initially, investigators hoped that they may have some clues as they did collect forensic evidence at the scene. Later, however, they stated that it turned out not to be relevant. But... The lead detective, Michael Irby, claimed that the case was still active and that there were persons of interest, but not enough information to make any arrest. It came to light that Sherry had some disputes with others who didn't like her relationship with her boyfriend. In addition, around four months before her death, there was a break-in to her house with no signs of forced entry. That break-in did leave Smith's room torn apart, but the only thing stolen was the handgun she kept in her closet. This is when Sherry had decided to install an alarm system at the encouragement of her boyfriend. There are still no arrests, and Sherry's family is still waiting for answers 12 years later. The Alabama Attorney General's office is overseeing Sherry's investigation. If you have any information regarding the murder of Sherry Smith, please contact the Alabama Attorney General's Cold Case Unit at 866-419-1236. Carrie Wayne Stokes on the night of November 23, 2006, at approximately 10.30 p.m., Kerry Stokes was getting into his girlfriend's car on the 600 block of Glenwood Street in Midtown Mobile. Just as he was entering the car, two unknown men appeared suddenly and began firing shots towards Kerry, with at least one striking him in the head. Kerry's girlfriend, already seated inside the car, fled the scene once Kerry was inside. However, their assailants continued firing shots at the car, hitting it multiple times. Fortunately, she remained unharmed and navigated to a Popeye's restaurant on Government Street where she met authorities and medical personnel. Carrie was immediately transported to the USA Medical Center for medical intervention, but despite those efforts, the injuries he sustained were too severe. Three days later, on November 26th, Carrie succumbed to his injuries. The identities of the men were unknown, as well as their motives, and it was unclear whether they had a vehicle of their own. The chaotic nature of the incident, coupled with the quick departure of Carrie and his girlfriend, left authorities grappling with the direction in which the assailants may have left the scene. Seventeen years later, as of this recording, Carrie's case remains unsolved. Although his family asserts that a witness came forward at one point and that they know the person's responsible, authorities have never publicly named any suspect. If you have any information regarding Carrie Stokes' murder, please contact Mobile Police Department at 251 208 7211.
or submit an anonymous tip on their website. Bridget Wright Bonham, 33-year-old Bridget from Jasper and Walker County, was reportedly last seen by her boyfriend, James Brown, on or about November 13, 2004, around 10.30 p.m. near Blackwater Creek on Alabama 69. When Brown reported Bridget missing on November 17th, he stated that he had some outstanding bad checks and was afraid to report it to the law enforcement. Brown claimed that he and Bridget were driving around and stopped on a remote road. When they saw headlights approaching from behind, they restarted the car and moved further down the road. Brown claimed that the vehicle was still following them when they reached the end of the road. So he and Bridget jumped out of the car and ran into the woods. He also claimed that Bridget stopped running because her feet were hurting and told him to go on. Brown returned to their car the next morning and he stated he had not seen her since. In December of 2004, a group of horseback riders searching for Bridget located her body partially submerged in a small creek that fed into the Blackwater Creek. Former Walker County Sheriff, and I apologize if I get his name wrong, John Mark Tyree, stated that the location was nowhere near the original search area. The week prior, shoes believed to belong to Bridget were located a significant distance away from where her body was discovered. The cause and manner of Bridget's death were inconclusive, but the circumstances surrounding her death are considered suspicious, and her case remains unsolved 19 years later. And suspicious is an understatement. Yes of the year. If you have any information regarding Bridget Bonham's death, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or you may contact Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Lisa Ann Pierce. As of November 6, 23 years have passed since the 2000 disappearance of 27-year-old Lisa Pierce who was last seen at the corner of Government Boulevard and Pleasant Valley Road in Mobile. Unfortunately, Lisa had struggled with addiction since she was very young. The owner of the Louisiana bar where Lisa's mother worked ultimately ended up adopting Lisa when she was five. Coupled with her difficult upbringing and rebellious nature, Lisa eventually fell in with the wrong people. She had children very early in life. At the age of 13, she gave birth to her first child, which was adopted by her aunt and at 21 gave birth to her first daughter, who was adopted out shortly after giving birth, knowing she couldn't care for her as she had become homeless. In fact, this daughter would finally learn who her biological mother was when she turned 21 in 2015, and in learning her name, stumbled across the missing Lisa Ann Pierce Facebook page and realized that she may never meet her mom. Shortly before vanishing in mid-October 2000, Lisa expressed concerns to her sister about the safety of her third child, born in 1998. Lisa feared for her life and asked her sister to look out for her daughter in case anything happened to her. Unfortunately, due to Lisa's ongoing struggles with addiction and her past, her words were dismissed as paranoia. Three weeks after Lisa was last seen, Lisa's longtime boyfriend or common-law husband, Daniel Stanley, reported her missing to police. From friends and family, it has been said that Daniel won't talk about Lisa's disappearance, possibly out of fear. A friend of Lisa's daughter shared an article about the case, and one other small oddity is that a package with a set of keys was mailed back to the home of a person Lisa would often stay with. There was no return address, and no further information is known about this. Discouragingly, there is little else known about Lisa's disappearance. Even the police report is nearly bare, and it seems there's been little work on her case. In 2020, Detective Long with Mobile Police Department told WKRG5 She believed a crime had been committed and that Lisa may one day be found through DNA. 
Lisa is a petite white female with sandy brown hair and hazel eyes. She stands at approximately 5'3 and weighed only about 95 pounds at the time she disappeared. She has a tattoo on her right ankle with the letters RS and pierced ears. As of 2023, she would be 50 years old. If you have any information, please contact Mobile Police Department at 251-208-7211 or submit an anonymous tip via their website. Edwin Satterwhite. Edwin Satterwhite was 52 years old when he was last seen at his home on Kingsridge Road in Theodore, Alabama. November 7, 1998, Edwin was supposed to meet his sister in Louisiana for an early Thanksgiving. He never showed up and no one has heard from him since. On November 12, 1998, his 1993 Lincoln Town Car was found at the corner of Highway 45 and Clark Avenue in Pritchard, Alabama. It apparently had been there for several days. While police looked inside the car, they found a cell phone, a radar detector, and the keys still in the ignition. The Charlie Project mentions that Edwin frequently gambled at casinos in the Mississippi Gulf area. And unfortunately, this is the last information we have available to date. Foul play is suspected, but to this day, 25 years later, Edwin has not been located. Edwin is a white male with brown hair and brown eyes, standing at approximately 6 foot tall and about 210 pounds. He wears prescription glasses. He would be approximately 77 years old at the time of this recording in 2023. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Edwin Satterwhite, please contact the Mobile County Sheriff's Office at 251-574-8633 or at their website you can submit an anonymous tip. Andrea Gonzalez This year marks 30 years since 5-year-old Andrea Gonzalez vanished from Russellville, Alabama in Franklin County. This past January, she would have turned 35 years old. Paul and Kim Gonzalez, her father and stepmother, reported her missing on November 20, 1993, claiming she'd vanished from their Russellville trailer overnight. Authorities quickly began to suspect foul play when bloodhounds could find no sign of Andrea beyond the front porch. But those suspicions wouldn't be confirmed until 1995 when Kim confessed to causing Andrea's death after accidentally placing her in a scalding hot bath, which caused severe burns. Kim claimed that she panicked when she found Andrea unresponsive hours later and wrapped Andrea's body in garbage bags before driving to Mondi Bridge to throw Andrea in the lake just outside of Phil Campbell. To further complicate the matter, Paul later claimed he was the one that actually disposed of Andrea's body in the lake. Despite their confessions, searches of the lake turned up no sign of Andrea, leaving some to speculate that Andrea may actually still be alive. Sadly, though, investigators believe Andrea is no longer alive. In 1995, Kim and Paul were indicted on capital murder charges, even though Andrea's body has never been located. A Butler County jury acquitted Kim of all charges except child abuse, and Paul ultimately pled guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter. Both were sentenced to 10 years in prison, but Paul was released just two years later. Part of Paul's plea deal was that he actually had to testify against Kim, which I thought was really just messed up because Kim was never actually offered a plea deal in all of this. And I know it's because they had kind of focused in on her from the very beginning. And we go through all of this in our previous episode, but that just will always bug me. To date, Andrea has never been located. And what actually happened that fateful night in November of 1993 remains a mystery. We featured Andrea's case earlier this year on Unforgotten. This complicated case is a must-listen and a must-share, so we encourage you to tune in to episode 15's three-part series to learn more, and hopefully someone will have additional information that may finally bring Andrea home and provide solid answers. 
At the time of her disappearance, Andrea was described as a white female, two and a half feet tall and approximately 37 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. She had a scar on the left side of her forehead near her hairline. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Andrea Gonzalez or her time with Paul and Kim, please contact Alabama SBI at 1-800-392-8011 or submit an anonymous tip through their website. Renee Bergeron 26-year-old Renee Bergeron, a Louisiana native, was living in Theodore, Alabama under the alias Maria Martinez. She was last seen alive on November 12, 1993, 30 years ago. On November 14, 1993, Renee's body was found off of the I-10 service road in Theodore, the victim of a brutal murder. Not only had she been decapitated, but her assailant had also mutilated her sexual organs. Her head was discovered the following day when investigators went back to the scene. Her family later discovered Renee had taken on a double life since moving to Alabama. Renee was a licensed cosmetologist and worked some time as a hotel concierge, but she had begun working in clubs and as a sex worker in the theater area. She was known under the pseudonym Maria Martinez. Her family noted that Renee was a caring mother devoted to her daughter. Over the years, there's been speculation that Renee's killer could have been someone in the drug industry and or part of the group of people she was known to hang around. Special investigator Sarah Kayleen believes that the sexual nature of the homicide points to a personal motive, a sexual compulsion, or potentially even a serial killer. The search for Renee's murderer is still active and ongoing. They have several persons of interest, but no arrests. In the last week she was alive, authorities believe she may have visited local bars known as The Old Mill, Jerry's Cabaret, Top Gun, and Knott's Landing. Mobile County Sheriff's Office continues to look for anyone who might have been working or visiting any of these establishments at or around the time of Renee's disappearance and that may have information. Renee was featured in the ID Channel's podcast, Why Can't We Talk About Amanda's Mom, earlier this year. The podcast reveals Sarah Kayleen developing new theories and witnesses spotting Renee very near the time she lost her life. If you have any information regarding the murder of Renee Bergeron, please contact Mobile County Sheriff's Office via their website or at 251-574-8633, or you may contact Sarah Kayleen at 251-298-7879. Willa Dane 16 Pickett Few details are known at all about Willa Dean Pickett. Willa Dean disappeared in November of 1948 at age 17. 2023 now marks 75 years since she disappeared. She is the longest unsolved missing person case in Walker County that we know of, and we believe possibly in the state of Alabama, but we're still working to verify that. While Willa Dean is still considered missing, she's presumed deceased. She's a white female with brown hair, and if she's still with us today, she would be approximately 92 years old. Secrets True Crime shared her disappearance from Empire in Walker County, Alabama in a couple of posts in 2020 and 2021 in a special video, 41 Souls, the Missing and Murdered of the Warrior River Basin, published on YouTube in August of 2020. If you have any information about Willa Dean Pickett's disappearance, please contact Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or the Secrets True Crime Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Thank you for listening today, and thank you for being an advocate for those missing and murdered persons and for their families who so desperately want answers and justice. Please continue to share their stories, and if you have any information about their cases, please don't wait. 
come forward and make contact. Just one last reminder that the contact information for all cases mentioned today will be in the episode description. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.